Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Slaves. Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins And live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Stephen, thank you very much. Please do uh, keep your Bibles uh, open in front of you. Uh, Friday uh, in the morning I had a text from the... uh, my colleague, the curate here, Chris Tufnell, to tell me that his wife, Rebecca, had gone into labour. And so that is why I am standing here now and not him. Uh, but uh, I can't leave it there, can I? I've got to tell you what happened. The good news is that James Edward David Tufnell was born 
at uh, 9.13 in the evening on Friday night. And I know that's not the whole message because uh, all the ladies will want to know how big was this little boy. Um, seven pounds and eight ounces, I believe. Uh, Chris, we're thrilled for you. And uh, do give uh, Rebecca our love. And I'm going to pray that um, with little time to prepare, this makes sense. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you very much for the good news of uh, this lovely little lad uh, being born to the Tufnells. Uh, And uh, just as we thank you for that physical new birth, we thank you for spiritual new birth in Christ. And we pray that those of us who are indeed born again in Christ uh, would learn now how we ought to live and be ready to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm not the only one I know uh, that uh, through my letterbox, through social media, through unsolicited phone calls and through emails, I am regularly being encouraged to make good investments for the future. Now, it might be partly because of my age, but barely a week goes by when someone isn't trying to get me to think about how I invest what I have to enable me to enjoy a comfortable life in the future, particularly in retirement But it doesn't matter who we are or what age we are, we are all making decisions about investments all the time. Even if our decision is to spend everything we have now, we are making a decision, an investment, then in the present. Now, since the beginning of this academic year, we've been considering how to make wise investments, not only with our money, indeed, that's barely been the subject, but with our time and our effort, indeed, our whole lives. How can we make a good investment with our lives so that when we do reach the end of our life, we'll look back and think, I did it well. I made, you know, it was a good, good use of my life. I'm glad I lived it that way. This morning is the last in this series, and we're thinking about making a wise investment in doing good. Uh, Look at uh, verse 11 of 1 Peter 2 that Stephen just read for us. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Here it is. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. These two verses are not difficult to understand, which is a great relief to me as I didn't have long to think about them. They can be summed up in one sentence. Live a good life so that God is glorified. That is the take-home message this morning. Live a good life so that God is glorified. We could in some ways close the Bible and go home, except it's never that straightforward, is it? And a careful reading of verse 12 tells us that living a good life won't be easy because it won't be popular. Verse 12, live a good life and you'll be accused of doing wrong. See, making that investment, investing in living a good life, is going to cost you. It's going to be a costly investment. And we see why when we note how Peter addresses his readers in verse 11. He calls them aliens and strangers. No, they weren't from a different planet, but they were from a different world. As Christians, we belong to another place. We are citizens of heaven. And as such, there's a sense in which we will always feel out of place in this world, like foreigners, like aliens and strangers. If you've ever lived in another country for any length of time, you'll know how it feels. I'm not thinking about going on holiday. That's not really long enough. But actually living and working abroad. I know some of you have done that. The longest I ever lived in another country was when I spent 10 weeks in the US. Most of that time I was working amongst drug drug addicts and homeless people in Manhattan. 
So for those of you who are old enough to remember the band Police, I could sing along with Sting, I'm an alien, I'm a legal alien, I'm an Englishman in New York. You'll understand I didn't go around singing that, that wouldn't have been very smart, but for ten weeks that was how I felt. And if you remember the song, the lyrics go like this, I don't drink coffee, I'll take tea, my dear, and you can hear it in my accent when I talk, I'm an Englishman in New York. It's quite an experience living in a country that speaks the same language, yet feeling so out of place. Yes, by my accent, everyone could tell I didn't belong there. And quite often the words I used didn't translate. I was using English words, and we all spoke English, don't we, over here in the States, yet they didn't understand what I was saying. Not to mention how everyday customs were completely weird to me. Quite simply, I felt out of place. I stuck out like a sore thumb. Now look, as Christians, we too should feel out of place in this world. We should appear different to those around. We are aliens and strangers here, verse 11. We are citizens of another country. We follow a different king with different values and different attitudes. And if we live differently, we'll not only feel out of place, but we won't be accepted even when we do good, verse 12, we'll be accused of doing wrong. That was happening to the Christians Peter was writing to in first century Asia Minor. They were suffering what we might call low-level persecution, suffering just because they were Christians. Turn back with me to, to chapter one, if you will. In the first chapter, Peter begins by praising God for the salvation we've received in Christ. He speaks of the, the great heavenly hope we have And then in verse 6 he writes, in this, that is in our heavenly hope through the resurrection of Jesus, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. All kinds of trials. These Christians were suffering low-level persecution for their faith. There's nothing in this letter to suggest that they were being killed or even imprisoned because they were Christians. There's no mention of systematic and targeted persecution from the authorities against the Christians, but they were getting a hard time because they owned the name of Christ and wanted to live his way and stood up for him. So you can imagine a Christian family sitting down for their evening meal together. And as they tuck into their pie, peas and mashed potato, Dad asks the family, so how was your day? And 10-year-old Johnny says, it's been a horrible day, Dad. The other boys at school won't talk to me and at lunch break they're all looking at me and pointing at me and calling me names. You know the normal stuff, God squad, Jesus freak, Bible basher, religious nut. I know it's only name calling, Dad, but it really hurts and I feel so lonely. Do I have to go to school tomorrow? And then mum pipes up, I'm so sorry for you, Johnny. I've had a hard time too. Ever since I invited those other mums to our evangelistic event, they've snubbed me. It's not what they say that gets me because they don't really say anything to me. As I wait at the school gate, they just look right through me as if I wasn't there. I feel like a social pariah. And dad says, I'm sorry for you both. My day's not been much better. My boss has told me that unless I'm willing to use some unquestionable approaches to sell more products, my career is over. You know, I think he's going to try and find a way to get rid of me. It's not actually my performance at work. I have some of the best sales figures in the department. No, I'm sure he wants to get rid of me because I'm a Christian. Do you see that kind of low-level persecution? 
being marginalised, ostracised in society, missing out on a promotion at work because we, we're Christian and because we stood up for Christ, being shunned by neighbours and colleagues, being made to feel as if we're odd, as if we don't belong, as if our views have no place in the very society we live in. Verse 6, suffering all kinds of trials. And so Peter is writing to encourage them to keep going as Christians, even though they feel like aliens and strangers in this world feeling as if they don't fit in. Now, I reckon increasingly the Christian experience today is just like these first century Christians. See, uh, 50 or 60 years ago, Christians in Britain experienced something that was quite abnormal when you think about being a Christian for the last 2,000 years across the whole globe. We experienced something quite abnormal in that our views were accepted and acceptable in the society around us. And so four or five decades ago, we didn't suffer for our faith in this country in the same way. But listen, that is not normal. Turn with me one more cross-reference and then we'll go back to chapter two. Turn with me to chapter four and look what Peter writes to the Christians in first century Asia Minor. Chapter four, verse 12. Dear friends... Do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. It's not odd that you're suffering for your faith. That's the normal and expected experience of Christians who are really standing true to Christ. But you see, because that's not been our experience in the past, in the recent past in Britain, we are quite surprised when we get a hard time for being Christian today. We're surprised when in recent years Christians at work have been reprimanded for wearing crosses around their necks and on their lapels. That's new. We're shocked when Christians have been taken to court because they've stood stood firm on their Christian morals. Our society is becoming increasingly, progressively more morally liberal and although tolerance is the great clarion call, Christians are not being tolerated because our views are seen to be intolerant. You see, since the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York in 2001, lots has changed. Any religious extremism is treated with suspicion and viewed as very dangerous. And we are seen as religious extremists. Our definite views on sexuality and marriage and gender distinctives and the uniqueness of Christ for salvation alone, these things are increasingly unacceptable in 21st century Britain. What used to be mainstream views in society, because we lived in a nation that had been massively shaped by Christianity, now a minority view. And as our society becomes more morally liberal and as religion is viewed with great suspicion, our position is increasingly seen as unacceptable. So if we're going to stand up for Christ, we can expect to be marginalised and ostracised by society. We, we need to get used to that being the norm. If we live a good life, a good life by the Bible standards, we are going to get a hard time for it. We'll be pushed to the margins. And because most of us don't like feeling out of place, there's the danger that one of two things will happen. And this brings us back to verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Our first danger is what we might call inculturation, a long word. All it means is becoming like the culture around us so that we fit in. I don't know about you, but you see, I like a quiet life. Um, So uh, when I'm getting a hard time for being a Christian, it will always be my temptation to keep quiet about being Christian. Not to give up being a Christian, you understand. I'm convinced it's true. 
but very tempting to blend in with the culture around me, not to be distinctive, not to rock the boat so that I don't suffer for my faith. Now, Peter is aware of the danger of inculturation. So he writes, chapter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Abstain from sinful desires. Why does he say that? He's basically saying, abstain from taking on board the world's values so that you look like the world, so that you don't stand out. And Peter says, that is not for your good to live that way. See it there in verse 11? Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Every Christian... Every day is in a spiritual battle. Every day we enter into a war zone the moment we open our eyes. Every day there is an assault on our soul. Sin is fighting to take us away from God. And when it wins the battle, it damages our soul. But Christian, the most precious thing you have is your soul. Remember the words of Jesus, Mark chapter 8? What good is it for you to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? What good is that? Jesus says you can have everything, everything this, this life affords, everything this world values, success in your career, material benefits, a comfortable home and the most, uh, the most high-tech gadgets. You can have luxuries, good food, eating out, foreign holidays. You can have the lot. And Jesus says, what good is it? What good is it if you gain the whole world and yet in the process of getting it all, forfeit your soul? What good is it if when you die, those at your, at your funeral say how successful you were and what a brilliant life you had? What good is it if at the uh, very moment that everybody's saying that at your funeral, at that very moment you are standing before God being banished for eternity from him, having lost your soul? What good is that, says Jesus? Every day sin is at war against your soul, trying to get you to sell your soul. So Peter says, verse 11, don't be enculturated. Don't be like everyone else. Don't blend in. And see what he says here in verse 11? It's brilliant. Although that is painful standing out, it will actually do you more harm than good to blend in. Yeah, standing out is difficult, but if you, if you blend in, it will harm your soul and that's the most precious thing you have. Well, look, if enculturation is one danger, the other danger is to swing to the other extreme and to be so intimidated by the world that we largely withdraw from society around us, have little to do with our community, batten down the hatches, spend all our time with our little, in our little Christian ghettos. That's the temptation. That's the second temptation. But Peter says that's not an option either because people need to hear about Jesus. He's the saviour of the world. And so look what Peter says in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans. Live your lives among unbelievers, at work and out of work too. Hang out with your colleagues after work. Be involved in sports clubs and book clubs with unbelievers. Get to know your non-Christian neighbours. Socialise with people who aren't Christians. Live among the pagans, the unbelievers. But as you do, live such good lives that you are distinctively Christian. See what's going on in verse 11 and 12? Never compromise for your soul's sake, as we've seen in verse 11, for your sake, and never compromise for the sake of unbelievers, because look where verse 12 is going. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, we are to live such a good life among unbelievers 
that they will come one day to glorify God. Now look, um, before we move on, there are two things to say about what I've just said and then there are three areas of application that we'll end with. The first two things to see about this is firstly, living a good life on its own won't make anyone a Christian. Look back to verse nine because we've landed in verse 11. We, we, we don't know the context. Look what he says in verse nine. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. This is the point. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are meant to declare God's praises with words. And this is the point. He's, no one will ever become a Christian by good works alone. Just imagine that you're uh, at work or around wherever you spend most of your time and you are living such a good life that people notice that you're different. Wouldn't that be good? People look at you and they say, he, she, they're very impressive. Uh, Their lives are really, really good. That'd be great if people noticed that kind of lifestyle. Now just imagine that you lived that way, living a really impressive life. What would be the result? Who would get the glory if all you've done was live a good life, not, not mention that you're a Christian, people would say, that person's a really nice person. And suddenly, all the glory goes to you. You see, I remember a friend telling me about a Christmas party they went to. I've changed his name. Um, uh, someone that he worked with had had too much to drink at the uh, Christmas party. And he was with a number of other colleagues. And this person came up and said, you're such a wonderful person, Mr. Jones. He's a wonderful person, Mr. Jones. Oh, you're wonderful. And I know, I've never been drunk, so I don't know how to do it. But anyway, um, you get the point. And you see the point. All the glory goes to Mr. Jones. Now, of course, that's much better than saying you're a scoundrel. But you see, just living a good life doesn't glorify God. It glorifies you. You have to say something about why you're living as you're living. We have to talk about Jesus. We have to, verse 9, declare the praise of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Living a good life on its own won't make anyone Christian. And you get that from looking at verse 9 and not just verse 12, you see. The second thing to comment before we make three applications is living a good life won't be universally appreciated. Look again at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, Peter expects Christians to be accused of doing wrong even as we do good. Remember, good is what the Bible defines as good. But even sort of basic moral goodness is sometimes seen as wrong. Now that is very important to see because there is nothing unrealistic or triumphalistic about Peter's words here. Peter doesn't suggest for a minute that if we live a good life, everyone's going to become a Christian. Uh, We know that's not true. And that's not what he's saying. See, again, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, in other words, they don't really like what you're doing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What is going on there? The day that God visits us, that is the final day, judgment day, the day of Christ's return. On that day, God will be glorified because of words and deeds that we have lived, either because people have become Christians and therefore they'll be praising God as Christian believers on the day that Jesus returns, or, this is important, important, that many who have rejected our message and hated our lifestyles on that day will be forced to see that how we lived was right. 
When they come face to face with Jesus on that day, they'll say and see of you, verse 12, that even though you, you, they accused you of doing wrong, your life was right and good. And so on that day, even though they're not Christians, they will glorify God for the work he did in you on that day. So then live a good life so that God is glorified. And what will that look like? Three areas of application uh, that come directly from Peter. The first is be a good citizen. This is verses 13 to 18. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now remember, as Peter writes these words, they did not live in a democratic society. Many of the rulers that these people were under were harsh tyrants. Yet, he insists Christians obey the authorities. See, we Christians are to be the best citizens around. Obeying the authorities, submitting to the government, keeping the law even when it doesn't suit us. Keeping the law even when we don't agree with it. Always keeping the law, except of course when it contravenes God's law. He is our first master. We obey him, but any other time, providing the, um, the law is not against God, we obey it, whether we like it or not. So let's make some low-level application. A Christian, live a good life behind the wheel of your car. I'm always surprised when I see Christian stickers on the back of a car that is zooming past me on the motorway at many, many miles over the limit. Why do they put the, the uh, sticker on the back of the car? Well, no, actually, why do they do that? Christian, do not be on your phone when you're driving. Whether you think that's a good law, I think we all know it's a good law, but don't do that. And Christian, pay your taxes. We had a chance to save some money recently when a company quoted to do some work for us at a lower price if we paid cash in hand. It was pretty obvious it was a tax avoidance scam, so we used a different company, even though it was more expensive for us. Now look, driving within the law, paying your taxes are fairly low-level applications on this, uh, but you can work out all those sorts of applications as you meet in your small groups together. Let, let me encourage you to do that. Here's something a bit of a higher level. I'm going to take a big swallow as I suggest this and, um, and uh, take my life into your hands. Um, how about Brexit? There'll be a number of different views on this subject in the room. Do not worry, I'm not going to tell you what you should think on the issue. But it's a great issue on which we can work out the principles of these verses. When Brexit happens, if it happens before Jesus returns, um, sorry, <laughs> I shouldn't be cynical. When Brexit happens, how will we respond? Especially if it doesn't work out as we had hoped. How will we comment on it on social media, in the office, with our friends? Will I speak and act in a way that is any way different to the world around me? Will my attitude to Brexit and to the government be shaped in any way by my being a Christian? If we're given a second referendum, will, I, will the way I vote be influenced by the fact that I follow Christ? Well, look, there are a myriad of ways we need to think about living a good life by being a good citizen. You can chase them up in your small groups. I'd encourage you to do that. But that's the first application. You see, live a good life, verse 11 and 12, and then he talks about being a good citizen. Secondly, second application, Peter says, be a good worker, verses 
18 to 20. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Isn't that interesting? Now, although the language here is of slaves and masters, don't equate this with the 18th century slave trade. Being a slave in the first century was not really like that. Indeed, it is quite reasonable to think that there's approximate equivalent here to those of us in contracted employment. So really, for us as we read this, Peter is saying, respect your boss. Even if your boss is not a nice person. Even if your boss is harsh, verse 18. Respect your boss. So here's the thing, low-level application at work. What are, you, what are you like in the office? Are you like everyone else who complains about the boss? Do you join in the office gossip? Do you slack off when the boss is not around? Do you refuse to obey company rules and guidelines because you think they're stupid? Look, sometimes the office rules, the company guidelines will be stupid, but you should obey them unless they go against what God says, and usually they don't. Those are simple and basic areas in which we can live a good life. But there'll be much more complex things we need to consider. Um, I know that there are many medics here. Christian medics will be facing ethical issues often, maybe every day. Now, no doubt the medics here have thought through those Christian medical ethics. But let me encourage you to get involved with the local Christian medical fellowship to help you not only to think these things through, biblically, but to give you courage to stand up for what is right because you and I know that if you do stand up for right, it could really affect your future, your career. Maybe even end it. Of course, it's not just medicine that there are ethical issues over to consider at work. I think every area of the workplace has some ethical dilemma Should I do what they say? Should I stand up for Christ in some way? Some of you and I used to work in the the newspaper industry. There were a number of times when I had to make a choice. Do what my boss wanted me to do or do what was right. I was asked to lie and to cut corners that were bordering on illegal. Would I do them? It would affect my promotion. Might even lose my job. Would I do what was right? That was the choice. As I was thinking about this this week, after I became a Christian, I had to think about my expenses. Um, I'd, been a, I'd been in this company for a couple of years. Um, I, I had a company car, and like everyone else in the office, I submitted monthly expenses claims. And like everyone else in the office, I inflated the mileage claims. It was a great way of earning a little bit of extra money. It wasn't right, but that was before I was a Christian. So becoming a Christian, I realized that wasn't acceptable. So I remember the first time I submitted a mileage claim that reflected the actual miles I'd driven. So the monthly mileage claim fell significantly from the previous two years. And my boss called me into his office and said, about your expenses. It was a very uncomfortable moment. I see your miles have gone down considerably this month. And before he said anything else, I I came clean. I said to him, I'm sorry, but for the last few years, I've been inflating my expenses claim. He said, yes, I know that. We all do that. That's why this mileage claim isn't acceptable because it shows the rest of us up. Isn't that interesting? That's an example of why people don't like it when we do what is good and right, you see. But, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us eventually. 
Now look again, you can chase up in your small groups how to live a good life in the workplace. Be a good citizen then. That's the first application that Peter brings us to. Be a good worker, the second application. And the third is be a good spouse. And you'll find this in chapter three, verses one to seven. Now my time has definitely gone. I need to be quick. Uh, But a couple of quick thoughts on this. In verses one to seven of chapter three, Peter first addresses a wife living with an unbelieving husband. And you'll see in verse one, he basically says, when your husband will not listen to the word of God proclaimed, then live such a good life that that will win him over. That's a tough thing. If there are people here married to unbelieving spouses, we want to support you in that and encourage you. It's tough. Keep living a good life. Keep being exemplary in the way you live. He says in verse seven, um, husbands treat your wives with respect. He's not now thinking of an unbelieving wife, although that might be the this, this situation, but just husbands treat your wives with respect. That is a very powerful witness to the world around us because sadly many men speak quite disparagingly about how do they put it, her indoors. Even using that expression is not very helpful, is it? Very unpleasant. But I think of someone I know who always treats his wife with respect and always speaks warmly and well of his wife, as we all should, but he really does do that. And that has had a huge impact on one of their non-Christian friends so that she said when she started to look into the Christian faith, I wanted to know why it was that he treated his wife so much better than my husband treated me. Isn't that powerful? Now look, do you see the point? If we live good lives in society, in the workplace, in the home, which covers just about every area of life, If we live good lives everywhere, verse 12, it will cause some people to look into why we are as we are and some will become Christians, end of verse 12, and glorify God on the day he visits us because they're now Christian believers. Others, many others, will look at our good lives, accuse us of doing wrong now, but when Jesus returns, they will glorify God on the day he visits us because they will look at us and say, you were right. And so living a good life is a great investment. It's a great investment because it's the right way to live. But it's a great investment because it was what we were made for, to glorify God, which is what happens when we live that way. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we think of the the Lord Jesus, we think of one who came, you know, as an alien and stranger in this world, but who lived a wonderful life, the perfect life. And as we think of him, we think of one who was rejected as he did that. Help us then to live in his footsteps. Help us to be keen to live as we should, even though it won't be popular but knowing that it is a better way to live because it will be um, good for our soul and it will be good for some who see our lives and turn to you and glorify your name on the day that Christ visits us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.